thanks, buddy. So we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, which is a letter to a church in Ephesus that was written by someone called Paul, who is a a convert to Christianity because of a miraculous encounter with Jesus. He writes a letter to the church in Ephesus nearing the end of his life when he's imprisoned thousands of kilometers away in a completely, um, very disconnected from where the church in Ephesus, which is uh, in Turkey, uh, um, is now. But um, one of the things that we've been looking at is the themes that move through the book of Ephesians. And one of the big things that Ephesians 1 uh, builds on is this idea of identity. And that continues in chapter 2 and 3. And so we're actually in chapter 2 this week. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And I'm going to invite up Deborah Wilson to do the reading. Thanks, Deborah. And thank all of you for being patient and gracious with me. I went back over this series. This, I'm not, um, this isn't revisionist history. At the start of the summer, I was like, I'm doing a new series. I've been skewing a little long in my messages. People have been very gracious. Ephesians is going to be different, though. I'm going to challenge myself to be into like 30, 32 minutes. I'm averaging 44-minute sermons through this, and you haven't said anything to me. You're very gracious, you're very kind. At the gym, we do a thing called AMRAPs, which is as many rounds as possible, but it's time capped. So that's what I'm gonna start doing on Sundays. 30 minute AMPAPs, as much preaching as possible, time capped at 30 minutes. Man, there's a lot of stuff in in Ephesians that it's so amazing, and uh, I wanna get to it all and I can't, but I hope it feels like 10 minutes and not 47 like last week. Okay, let's go through this. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Okay, let's break down a few things. 
some really loaded terms, really loaded ideas, very easy to misinterpret what is being said, to inject our own meaning into the text. First of all, when Paul says, dead in your sins, that is designed to paint a very bleak portrait of human life disconnected from God's love and grace. The word dead is the Greek word nekros, which means it's ineffective or powerless, literally dead, unable. And the inference there is outside of Christ, we're powerless, we're not able to live the kind of life that we were called to live as image bearers of God, fully connected to God, fully connected to our own sense of purpose and identity, fully connected in healthy ways with other image bearers, and um, uh, perfectly and wholly and holistically living out our vocation in the world that's aligned with our identity and our particular skills and talents. Paul says, outside of Christ... We are dead in our sins. We don't have the capacity and the power to live into that vision of life. And that shouldn't come as a shock because most of us don't even have the power to live into the vision of life that we might hold for ourselves. Forget about God's standards or God's visions. Just scale it back. Do any of us meet or exceed the kind of life that in our mind's eye, when we start the day, when we start the week, when we make, when we make a five-year plan, we say, yeah, I'm going I'm I'm to go after this. I'm going to achieve this. We can't even live up to our own expectations and visions for our own life. Why? Paul says it's because we're under the power and penalty of sin. There's a force at work in us that is holding us down and, pu- and pulling us back from all that God wants. And he says, this is the way you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the world live is peripateo, which in the Greek means walk, and it refers to a lifestyle. He says, you were in this lifestyle of, you were sort of like, uh, maybe the contemporary way to say it is you were, you were the living dead, you were the walking dead. You were alive in some ways, but dead to your potential, dead to the kind of life that God wanted to call you into. You could exist, but you weren't thriving or flourishing. You weren't fully human. And when Paul says the ways of this world, he means something very, very specific. And this is important because this can get uh, misunderstood and misapplied in all kinds of ways. Sometimes world in the Bible can refer to literal creation. Sometimes it refers to society or cultures. Often in Paul's writing, it's a word that serves as a allusion to just any pattern of living in the world that is anti-God, that either ignores God or just completely rejects him. The reason why this um, understanding this pretty precisely is important is because what some Christians do, I certainly did this when I was starting to read the Bible, is I heard worldly and I thought, oh, things that are connected to the world are bad, like, like literally creation, like out there in society. So I, I, in my mind, I kind of broke down life into worldly things and spiritual things. And I just started reading the Bible and figuring out, okay, oh, that, that's a bad thing. That goes over here, that goes over here, that's bad, that's good, that's sinful, that's righteous. And that's not the way the Bible is trying to teach us to understand life. If we understand life that way, what we're essentially saying is God made certain things bad God made certain things good, and a good life is avoiding bad things and doing good things. Now you might be saying, well, that does kind of sound like sort of what the Bible says. That's different than saying God made everything good, 
sin has corrupted that goodness so that now in everything there's the potential to do evil or good. And now our calling as Christians is to, in all things, Paul will say, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, whether you dance, whether you're balancing uh, your, uh, your, your budget, whether you're uh, playing soccer, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Direct that activity from in your heart and do that activity in a way that honors God. And that changes because now life isn't split between bad things to simply avoid, good things to do. It is all of life is an arena whereby I learn how to direct my activities to the glory of God and to my neighbor's good. And that's very, very freeing because it eliminates a, a fractured, dualistic spirituality. And it allows us to move into every single dimension of life and to say, how do I honor God in this arena? And that can lead to a life of tremendous joy. And like I said last week, it means that you can never stop learning and growing. And you should never be bored as a Christian because in every area, you are learning in new ways how to understand and apply God's truth to this uh, particular arena of life. And so when Paul says, hey, Ephesians, you walk, you used to walk in the ways of the world. He's saying you used to, your lifestyle was one where you basically went through everyday life but you did it ignoring God or being openly hostile towards God. You were living life on your own terms. He says, um, and you followed the ways of the world and the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Ruler of the air um, very clearly is an allusion to Satan if you do your homework. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's clear here, but if you understand kind of what Paul's writing and where he's going to go in Ephesians, the broader biblical witness, this is a reference to Satan. Again, we have to be very, very careful how we understand and apply this verse because some people have read it and say, oh, so non-Christians are people who follow in the ways of the world and they follow Satan. So all non-Christians are Satanists. And I've heard people use that term or use that uh, line of thinking on people. And that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying people who are living as if God doesn't matter are following in principle the spirit, the, the way of understanding, the way of thinking that ties all the way back to the, to the devil himself who says, I don't need God. I'll live life on my own terms. I'll define right and wrong for myself. I want to be autonomous. It's not that non-Christians or people who don't believe um, are actively, intentionally worshiping Satan or following him in the way that we follow Jesus. They're just living into that plot line of life that says life's about you. Life's about making sure that you're secure, you get what you need, you are number one, you come first, and you're always looking for ways to reinforce that autonomy and to buttress yourself in terms of power and privilege in the world. And Paul says, that was the plot line that you were living before you came to know Jesus. He's, he's uh, talking, he's confronting the Ephesians on that. And then he says, all of us lived among them at one time. Everybody lived like this. We're all in the same boat. All of humanity lived where we were either uh, just callously ignorant towards God or hostile towards him. We lived where we basically lived to gratify the cravings of our flesh. 
and follow its desires and thoughts. Now again, very important to understand when Paul says flesh, what he's referring to, because we might make the immediate movement to say flesh means like skin, like flesh means body. So our bo- Paul, Paul is talking about our bodies and the desires and impulses that come from our bodies as being something bad. And that's not the way Paul talks about flesh. Flesh is a term that is a shorthand way of referring to sinful impulses that are alive and well in all of us. And that's important to say sinful impulses because as image bearers of God, we carry within us sometimes the desire to do what is right and good, but more often than not, the desire to be self-seeking and to do that which is evil or crooked or mm, speaking half-truths in a way that gives us an advantage somehow, bending the rules, not quite applying them to us, and that's fleshly. So when we talk about something being worldly or fleshly, or the Bible does, we shouldn't connect that immediately to our bodies as if our bodies are something bad that we are to be rescued from. The resurrection of Jesus makes it very clear our bodies are a gift of God that God intends to rescue and redeem and for us to enjoy forever. It's a Greek philosophical idea that the body is a tomb for the soul. The soul is a pure good thing, the body is like the corrupted shell, and then in death you become free when the body, when you throw off your mortal coil and your consciousness can ascend to the ethereal realm. That is very different than a biblical vision that says heart, soul, mind, and strength, the totality of your personhood ultimately will be redeemed in a new heavens and new earth where you will touch and, and, and matter itself will be redeemed, enhanced by God's glory and enhanced because all that is corrupting and sinful about it will be removed. But we will live in a new heavens and new earth forever. And that's very, very important to understand. Paul refers to as fleshly, those actions that we take in our everyday life that are grounded in just being self-centered and self-serving. And then he says, before we became Christians, we were by nature deserving of wrath, Wrath is a tough word for us to hear and experience, especially when we want to have the framing idea of our relationship with God be God is love and God is gracious and God is merciful. The idea that God could be wrathful makes many Christians uncomfortable. It's a stumbling block for people who want to even come to faith. I would never worship a God who's wrathful because our ideas of wrath are fairly disconnected from the biblical idea of wrath. Paul is not thinking here that because we were disconnected from God, God was just in a unhinged, frenzied, uncontrolled, unceasing outburst of rage towards us. God was just flipping his lid. He was in a perpetual state of wrath-like energy looking for a way to just bring the full force of his anger to bear on a humanity that ignored him or rejected him. That is not how the Bible talks about wrath. In the Bible, God's wrath is real. God's wrath is highlighted in the Old Testament, in the person of Jesus, in the letters that follow the ministry and the implication for those who follow Jesus. But it means God's justified, it's purposeful, meaning it's controlled, 
and it's actionable anger, meaning God does take decisive action at points. He doesn't just stew and hold the wrath and the anger in his heart. He does something with it. But he doesn't flip out in a mindless rage. And his wrath is against sin. It is not principally against people. And we know that because as the New Testament says, while we were still sinners, Christ showed his love for us in this, and that he died for us. God wants to, God is angry at the sin that yes, we do, but God loves us underneath our identity as sinners before we became a Christian is our identity as an image bearer of God that God wants to rescue and redeem. If God was wrathful against people, full stop, there'd be no impetus for redemption or for the cross or for any of it. But if God loves us but wants to deal with sin and wants to figure out a way to destroy and punish sin without destroying and punishing us, that makes sense of the biblical story. And for those of you who are uncomfortable by the idea of a God of wrath, perhaps what we need to think through, and I've said this often whenever this comes up, is what are the consequences of believing in a God who isn't wrathful? Meaning, a God can look upon the sin in your life, and you're like, well, my, my sin's not too bad. Okay, expand the circle. Our city, our culture, our country, the world, humanity. God can look at all of the ways in which we ingeniously and creatively find ways to harm, hurt, exploit um, each other, the planet, ourselves, and God just says, eh, like, it doesn't really bother me that much, that's okay. A God who is wrathless has victims. And the victims of a wrathless God are people who are being exploited, who don't have a higher power to come on their behalf and to say enough is enough. And I will punish the wicked who are doing this to you. But I will also punish the wicked in a way that ideally gives them an opportunity to come to repentance. Because my desire is not that anyone should perish, but that all should come to saving faith and be reconnected to my love. So again, in this section, we can get really careless about our language and we can maybe read into this text that God is angry at humans and that humans are dead in their sins and that means things are as worse as they could possibly be and therefore we should have great suspicion uh, towards people who are not believers and that's not true at all. Paul is just saying outside of God, we cannot live the life that we are meant to live and we're powerless to live into that life and we're spiritually dead. We can't rescue ourselves. For many people, their life isn't as bad as they could be because God has given them grace in their life and given them some measure of wisdom and as an image bearer, they're able to navigate life in some areas wisely maybe. Praise God for that. But at the heart of things, which is fundamental reconnection with God in a way that spills over and heals every other dimension of life, Paul says, before you were in Christ, you were in sin and you were dead in your sin. And he's, he's using that very black and white way of thinking to help the Ephesians see how stark and how hopeless their lives were ultimately outside of Jesus. But, verse four, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. Because of his great love for us, there's something that goes 
way deeper than God's anger at sin or wrath at sin. Because of his love for us, because of his mercy, he made us alive in Christ. He provides a way for anybody, regardless of what they've done, to have their sins covered over, to have themselves cleansed and purified and brought from uh, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light and to start a new kind of life, learning how to reconnect with God, be reconnected to their purpose in the world with other people in a way that is healthy and aligned with what God has always wanted for his image-bearing creatures. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. We were dead, and now we've been made alive with Christ. And I've met Christians who've read that verse, and that hasn't been a source of joy for them. It's actually been a source of guilt because they think, well, before I became a Christian, like my life wasn't super terrible. And then I became a Christian. Like it was a lot better in a lot of ways, but I don't have like a really extreme, before I was a Christian, I was totally just um, derailing my life on every level. And then I became a Christian and everything became hyper successful. That's not Paul's point here. He's not saying what your lived experience was. He was saying spiritually, this is what happened to every one of you. So whether or not you have a dramatic testimonial from a human point of view, all of us have a dramatic testimonial from God's point of view because all of us were in sin, then God rescued us into himself. For some people, that might look like from a pit of addiction or dysfunction, uh, you know, you fill in the blank of whatever um, significant uh, hardship or uh, whatever in your mind's eye fits the descriptive of really living life in a way that is damaging to yourself and damaging to God and to go to something amazing. That does happen. Praise God for that. I had a very dramatic conversion experience. But we don't evaluate our conversion experience simply based on whether or not it seems shocking and fantastic to other Christians or even other people. We all thank God and come here and worship and everyday worship and give our lives over to Jesus more and more because we recognize that God made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. And then Paul says, it's by grace you've been saved. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, this is the pattern of so much of Ephesians and certainly these few verses here. This is, this is all about God. Paul has not gotten to anything about what you've done or what you've brought to the table is nothing. This is all grace. This is a gift. You haven't earned it. You haven't merited it. You haven't performed your way into God saying, okay, now you're ready. While you were dead, you brought nothing to the table. God rescued you. Now he's bringing certain things alive. But now that you're growing and you're experiencing growth in Christ and you're coming into your sense of, oh, this is who I'm meant to be in God, you don't look back and say, oh, I bet you that's why God saved me. God saw my potential. Or he knew I was going to be like this, and so in a, in a strange way, he said, yeah, you're worthy of saving because of what I was going to do or produce. No. We're worthy of saving to God because all of us are made by God and precious to him. God doesn't save us because of our potential. God doesn't save us because of good things that we can bring to the table. And that's a pattern God establishes very early with his people. In the book of Deuteronomy, when the uh, generation of Israelites are being brought through the wilderness for 40 years, so the first generation kind of dies off, and then the second generation can go into the promised land. 
God makes it clear through Moses. He says, you know, the Lord did not set his affection on you. The Lord didn't choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people. You Israelites, like, don't think God chose you because you were great and mighty and awesome. You were better looking. You had more potential. You were more numerous. Uh, you, had certain, you brought certain economic things to the table, or you had a particular sensitivity to my spirit. You were different in kind somehow than other people. That's not why I chose you. That's not why I loved you. Verse 8, it's because the Lord loved you. I set my affection on you because I love you. It's just grace. I'm saving you because love and mercy are my character. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. And this is a really interesting verse, in a, uh, sorry, in verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the, incomparably, or show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There's a whole deep dive you could do there. Very interesting to think through the implications of God somehow spiritually raising us with Christ because we are in Christ. So in some ways we're in the heavenly, but we're obviously not. We're here now. And there's all kinds of implications there, but the point that Paul wants to say to the Ephesians is that what you have now in Christ, the privilege of the life to come, the honor, the security, the responsibility, that those are secure and certain. As secure and certain as Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is right now, you have those things in Christ. So it, it's really about our eternal security and about alleviating the anxiety um, that says any of these things are in jeopardy as I move through life and I'm attacked by their spiritual forces or my faithfulness wavers or maybe I make a number of wrong steps here. Uh, you know, Paul's gonna say, no, these things are secure. Dust yourself up, go to God for forgiveness. You are in Christ, you're secure. Now live from that place of security. Verse eight, for it is by grace you have been saved. Paul repeats himself. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. I'm gonna read what one commentator said. Grace is the key ingredient and by, necess uh, and by necessity comes first. Everything else flows from and builds on a theology of grace. Grace means the completely undeserved loving commitment of God towards us. God gives himself to us, attaches himself to us, and he acts to rescue us by grace. Though wrath should have come and justifiably could have come to us, saving grace comes instead. And this action is rooted in God's very nature. And the fact that we need saving grace and it has to come from God points to the fact that there is, that when we talk about the spiritual human need, the Bible underscores that. We really do need God. God isn't just like a top-up or an accessory to our life. We need God to bring us into a new kind of life. Jesus called being, it, like being born again. Paul uses different terms. One of them is regeneration. It's like you put one, you know, a new energy into something. You've been re-energized by the Spirit of God. We don't just need self-help and tips and tricks from God. We need a new kind of life, access to a new power. And Paul says, all of this is not by works so that you can't boast. And by works, that's a loaded biblical term that just refers to any keeping of the commandments, uh, any keeping of religious customs such that you could say, oh, this is my religious performance. So if I do these things, then God will bless me, God will love me, God will forgive me. 
And what Paul is saying is everything that has happened to you, if you just take a big picture of God's rescue in your life, it's all because of grace. It's not because of works. So that you can't boast. It's not even like 99% God, 1% you. Like God drove 200 or 462 yards and it was like one inch from the cup, but you still had to like tap it in. You still can, you can, you can say like God saved me with my help. Like, no, it's like, it's all grace. It's this really striking language that is there to drive gratitude into our hearts. Timothy Keller says, God's grace, it doesn't, God's grace doesn't come to people who morally outperform other people. God's grace comes to those who admit their failure to perform and acknowledge their need for a savior. That's why Christianity is such good news. Because it is the only, and I'll use this term, although I don't like the term religion, but in terms of comparing it, in terms of the perspective of comparative religion. I would argue it's the only religion that is accessible to failures and screw-ups and those who do not have a capacity to spiritually rescue themselves. Now notice what Paul says in verse 10, right on the heels of saying, you've been saved by grace, not because of works, so that no one can boast. He says, for we are God's handiwork or workmanship, we are God's construction. He's speaking about the church corporately, you Ephesians, it's a group, but it also means you individually. You are God's handiwork. You are being constructed by God and, and put together into a new temple. You're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Workmanship or handiwork can literally be translated creation. You are God's recreation. You are being recreated in the image of Jesus. Not that you are no longer becoming who you are and have to put on some kind of fake persona, but you are becoming who you were designed to be all along in Christ. Jesus, by his spirit, is bringing to life those talents, capacities, passions, desires that are in alignment with your image-bearing nature. And he is putting to death those expressions, thought, word, and deed that maybe are second nature to you but are actually sinful and destructive and are holding you back from moving into the life that God has for you. Why is God doing this? Why is God recreating you? Notice it does not say you've been saved by grace, it's not from works so that no one can boast because we are God's workmanship saved in Jesus for heaven. I said this last week. I think I said it last week. I'll say it again here. We are not saved for heaven. We are saved for earth. Heaven is an inheritance that we receive because God wants to extend to us glorious pleasures forever because of his grace but that's not why he saved us. But if you think that, you can very quickly slip in to a very worldly, fleshly, self-serving faith that says, oh, now that my eternal destiny is secure, I'm going to heaven, 
I'll just live the way that I want to live now and do whatever I want to do now, and then I still get to go to heaven. That's worldly Christianity. That is fleshly Christianity, not of the body, but as a disposition and direction that is ultimately self-serving. Paul says, you have been saved for a purpose, and that purpose is now to do good works, good works to live the commands of God, to do things that are genuinely good in the world, to bring your best energy and God's redemptive love into your job, into your school, into your marriage, into your parenting, into your finances, into every part of life. You are called to do good. That's the point. God is remaking you to be a conduit and an agent of his blessing to other people so that as you grow in your um, understanding, like we talked about last week, of the hope that we have in Christ and the riches and the power, God is expanding the horizon. He's widening the circle. He's uh, expanding the circle of influence through which he can make you and us as a church a source of blessing to the world. That's why it's important for you to take your growth in Christ seriously because there are other people in your life who are depending on your growth. There are other people's destinies at stake in your workplaces, in your families, in this church. Your growth is critical, you should take it seriously. We are saved not because of good things that we've done, we've saved by grace, but now that we've been saved, we have a new mission. I used to say when I was teaching uh, students, I'd say, it would be like if someone said, I've practiced hockey, I was never good enough to make the NHL, I had to drop out of hockey, poured all kinds of time, energy, investment into it, and now, I just, I can't make it. I had to drop out at 15. No scout would look at me. I'm just not good enough. Then at 18, Toronto Maple Police phone you or Vancouver Canucks, whatever. Um, and they say, uh, we're going to give you a 25-year contract, $500 million guaranteed. You are officially a Canuck. Here you go. You start next week. What a, I mean, what an amazing gift. You you'd hang up the phone and you'd be like, I can't believe it. How did that person become a Canuck? By grace not by works. That person can't boast. They can't say, I made the team. I was drafted. No, no. This is all grace. What happens to that person day one of training camp? You get to work. Because you're a connect now. You're a connect now. You carry yourself like a connect. You wear the jersey. You represent the team. Other people on this team are counting on you. You don't get to show up on your first day and say, well, I don't know if I'm going to do these drills. I'm getting the money anyways. It's a guaranteed contract. I'm taken care of. So great for me. The weight of the glorious grace of what has happened to you should shake you into saying, well, I got, I got to work pretty hard. Because <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be here. And now I am. And I have the opportunity of a lifetime. And other people are, are depending on me. So I'm going to work hard. Am I going to fail? For sure. I'm going to have to learn lots of ways. I'm going to have to stretch my capacities in ways I can't even imagine right now. But my position on the team is secure. 
But now I live from that security, but I passionately becoming the best Vancouver Canuck that I can with the help of the coaching staff and my fellow teammates. We're called to do good works. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when grace was at work in me, he doesn't say, that was awesome. I just took my foot off the brake and went into cruise control. He said, I worked all the harder. When I saw God's grace in my life, it didn't make me spiritually lazy. It filled me with a fire to not want to make God's grace in my life something that was in vain. I want to be as fruitful as I can. I'm not saved because of good works. But now that I'm saved, I'm called to lean into them. I leave behind my old way of life. Notice here, this is so important. I've never noticed this before. And I thought, man, I got to say this because I've had this conversation with a lot of people lately. It says you are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, not grand works. I think that's really, really important. Don't fall into the worldly trap of believing that, the, that only grand acts of faithfulness count for God or are going to make any difference in the world. That only by having a vision to change the world and to do big things for God will you please God, will you establish yourself as a faithful servant. Too many Christians have come to believe this. I've had a lot of conversations with Christians who feel the prompting to do this but they reason that doesn't seem big enough, important enough. I can't see what God would do with this tiny little thing, so I just hesitate and I hold back, right? They think they've been created in Christ Jesus to do grand works. And Paul says, no, you've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Some Christians may be called to do something grand once in a while. That is not the norm. The norm is good works. The norm is taking the time to listen to a neighbor, who's walking with grief. The norm is going to a friend and helping them. Maybe going to a fellow student, somebody struggling in class, struggling on a team, doing what you can to encourage them. The norm is modifying your lifestyle such that you spend less money on yourself so that you can give more money away. The norm is small acts of faithfulness every day that your pastor's never going to see. Most people in your life aren't going to see. God's going to see it. God will reward it. But it's good work. And we can all do good work. And God says, good work is the work that I will bless. It doesn't need to be grand. Do you know, uh, what do I have here? I'm trying to think of my stats. Oh, here it is. By the year 2007, there were 154 books published globally that contained, as part of its title, Change the World. In all of publishing history up to 2007, 154 books that were either called Change the World or something else, How to Change the World or something Change the World. By three years later, there were 220 titles in existence. At its present rate, in terms of exponential growth, by the mid part of this century, every book published will include the title, <laughs> Change the World. Not quite. That's a bit of an exaggeration. But if you look at the curve, it's hilarious. 
we're obsessed with this idea of making a grand impact in the world. We want to be a part of something big. The gospel invites us into that. But God's ways are not the world's ways. And God says, you want to do something big? Awesome. Collectively, I will do something big. I may even do something very big through your individual life. Maybe not normally, but I will do something big if everybody commits to doing many things that are very good. Many things that are good. You are called to good works, and that is good news because you can do many good works every day. You have talents and skills and experiences. You have positioning. You have relationships. You have spiritual gifts that come together to form a unique matrix to love God and love others in a way that only you can. I love this quote from Timothy Keller. He says, there are some needs that only you can see. There are some hands that only you can hold. There are some people that only you can reach. Don't hesitate to do the next good thing because it doesn't strike you as grand enough. Trust God. Bring your loaves and fishes and do a good work. Okay, to close, I want us to see here that in verses 1 to 10 of Ephesians 2, you really have a good encapsulation of the gospel of grace. It's a very condensed, uh, condensed encapsulation of what the gospel is and how it's different than every other man-made religion. Because every other man-made made religion follows more or less this same script. My identity and my worth and my destiny are established by my striving. Could be moral striving, religious rituals, ritualistic striving, but essentially my performance. I have rules I need to follow. I have um, a certain line and vision for my life that I have to attain. And if I attain those things, that's the mechanism through which my identity and my worth and my destiny are established. And yet, if you go down that road, you will find yourself, if you succeed, living into greater and greater sense of self-righteousness and pride, because you will come to see yourself as better morally, better religiously than other people. Clearly you are. Look, look what you've been able to accomplish. Look what they haven't. Look at the widening gap. But more than likely, you will just experience spiritual burnout and anxiety. You will just realize, I can't even attain the vision for my own life, yet alone what these other religious traditions call me to. I'm continually falling short, and therefore my identity and my worth and my destiny are always in question. I'm always living with a low level, at least a low level of anxiety percolating in my heart. But the gospel flips that script and says your identity and your destiny and your worth are established not by your performance, but by Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf. You've been brought into the family of God and God seals you with a spirit and places on you your worth, secures your destiny and leads you into uncovering who you are in Christ and living into that new identity. It's by grace that you've been saved from sin's power and penalty and now you're in Christ because of God's grace. So I can't say that I'm prideful. Pride, there's a natural... Um, natural counter pull in my heart against pride because everything that I have is because of God's grace in my life. And I'm protected from spiritual burnout and anxiety because my standing in Christ 
isn't contingent on my performance. I can be very courageous and say, God, I really screwed up here and I'm sorry and I want to ask your forgiveness. I want to ask the forgiveness of this person and I want to move forward. Because my eternal security isn't at stake. My identity isn't at stake. I don't need to worry about God unadopting me or kicking me out of the family or saying, oh, I've not saved you anymore. You know, you worked your way in. Now you've worked your way out. It's by grace that you've been saved. It's by grace that you'll be sustained. And yet, like that hockey player who shows up on that first week of camp and I was like, well, this is scary. Like I'm actually like an NHL player now. I get to live into the adventure of learning and growing into my identity in Christ, heart, soul, mind, and strength, but never with the threat of condemnation hanging over my head from a place of security and purpose, knowing that I have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And now what I can do is I can free up all those other resources that used to be channeled into religiously performing And now I can channel them to intentionally, creatively, joyfully love and serve God and to serve and bless people and to make adjustments along the way, to repent when needed, to learn and to grow and to go on the adventure of learning what it means to love people in Jesus' name through my unique gifts and talents and passions and personality. And maybe the best news of all, that I'm not accountable at the end of the day. At the end of my life, I don't need to bring God a laundry list of, look at all the grand things I did for you, God. Look at all the nonprofits I started in your name. And look at all the seismic political shifts I initiated in your name. And look at all the world-changing ministry that I did. I'm free to bring God a list of good works. I volunteered for soccer here. I taught kids Sunday school here. I arrested negative momentum in my marriage here. I forgave here. I sent flowers here. I said a word of encouragement here. I picked up and cleaned over here. And God says, that is awesome. Because God is glorified and in the process I am changed and my neighbor experiences in many small but consistent ways the goodness of God. Let's pray. God, by your grace that we're saved, we are saved. This isn't from ourselves. It is a gift. Help that reality to really settle and transform our hearts for those of us who do have faith in you, for those of us who are not sure where they stand with you or holding you at arm's length. May this offer of grace be something which, Holy Spirit, you just push to the front of their consciousness and their mind they would see Christianity isn't about trying to live up to your expectations for us. It's about surrendering and saying, I don't want to live spiritually dead anymore. I want to walk in newness of life, and I believe only Jesus, because of who he is, can deliver me into that newness of life. Keep us, God, from a selfish, self-centered expression of faith. Remind us that in the gospel we are saved by grace, but we are saved for good works. Empower us to that mission this week. Amen.